<clears throat> Last week we began a series in a short chapter of Isaiah, chapter 12. But its brevity did not stop me from breaking it up into four weeks of examination. It is a hymn of thanksgiving that Isaiah seems to close his first round of oracles in his book. Page 836 if you have a pew Bible. And last week we, we talked about um, verse 1, where there is this declaration that God has comforted his people. And though he was angry, his anger was taken away. This is the gospel, the fact that God has a right to make a creation, to declare its good, and then to be angry when his creation rebels against him. And through Christ, that anger is taken away. Uh, God, the, the Almighty Lord of hosts, universe-making God who is perfect and holy in all his ways, who is justice and will have justice, this God has sent Christ to take away anger. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That was verse 1. Today we will be dramatically speeding up. And I will examine twice as much as material as last week. That's right, we're examining two verses as opposed to one. But by way of reminder, there are two times in Isaiah 12 where the BSB has praise or give praise, but other translations and the original Hebrew makes room to say give thanks. And I'm going to be using those phrases because they seem relevant to what we're examining. Um, So let's take a look at Isaiah 12 together, though. We're going to read through all of it, but then we will be unpacking verses 2 and 3 in our study time today. So if you're able to stand one last time, I invite you to do so. Isaiah chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. Isaiah writes... In that day you will say, O Lord, I will give thanks to you, although you were angry with me. Your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the springs of salvation. And on that day you will say, give thanks to the Lord, proclaim his name, make his works known among the peoples, declare that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known in all the earth. Cry out and sing, O citizen of Zion, for great among you is the Holy One of Israel. Let's pray. Father, it seems no matter if we read quickly, and try to grab a a picture of what you're saying in your word, or if we slow down and examine and dissect and think about each word and what those symbols maybe behind the words mean, whatever the way we examine them, you have made such a beautiful feast for us in your word to enjoy. Thank you for the relevance and their timelessness in all ages. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you who wrote these words and inspired them are available to us, leading and teaching us this morning. Father, um, I pray that we wouldn't just examine this 
scientifically or medically, but we would enter into the emotions that you bring out with joy and salvation, that we would understand in you we have a reason to be a joyful people. Say what it is that you desire. Please have your way in our hearts. Help us to be yielded to you. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. Something very considerable or an examination, a reality of the Christian life happened for me, I'd say, in the past 10 years or or so. Maybe an acknowledgement of something that I knew was there or a growth in faith that I've had as an adult versus when I was a child. And that is what salvation entails. Perhaps a big part of salvation. And we just went through a series in Philippians where this theme that I've discovered was present, unrelenting joy. One pastor said it this way, that he used to believe he had to choose between two separate avenues or roads in life. The first road was follow Jesus into a life of holiness. Or a second road, seek out in life a way to have complete and total joy. And he said it shocked him when he realized that these pursuits were not opposed or separate from one another. Rather, they're really one and the same. That in order to have complete and total joy in life, one must follow Jesus. And it shocked me, and I still see this in some children, that uh, there seems to be understood from childhood, if they're being taught faith in Jesus, there is a, there is a fixation on good people follow Jesus and go to heaven, bad people don't follow Jesus and go to hell. And, and sometimes I feel like that's kind of like our math as Christians. As if salvation is, yay, don't go to hell, how nice. And I feel like that this is very basic. This is too basic. And it misses the mark of what the gospel is. It's an easy, easy enough dichotomy, perhaps as children, but I feel like sometimes even from the pulpit, people still make that the primary truth. Truth. Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. What is the primary truth? Was it the primary truth when Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it all in its fullness or that they may have life and have it abundantly. Or when David said, you have made known to me the path of life, you fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Now before the fundamentalists and Pharisees Find their tomatoes to throw at me. I'm on your team. Go Pharisees. I do know this. Adam and Eve realized their mortality when they sinned. They found eternal punishment lest they repent. And the reality of the gospel is as Daniel writes in 12.2, many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, but others to shame and everlasting contempt. But imagine this. I approached you and said, 
for your setting for Thanksgiving, there are four options. Cabin in the woods, tropical, palmy beach, congested city, or back alley. Now, a few things might happen. My guess is the latter two might be less flattering for some. And for the first two, you might pick one or the other, but it's not really the proposal that excited you, really. It's really the reality is whenever you get to one of those locations that will really excite you. And furthermore, you're really not too bummed or afraid about the congested city or the back alley if you decide that's not even your choice to begin with. In the same way, for me and for the Christian, the reality that heaven or hell is the option before us, and it's either accepting or rejecting Jesus that decides that option, these in of themselves probably don't, and I'll say this just for me, but they didn't move me as much as realizing that Christ offers joy. Joy. Joy here and now, soul, S-O-U-L, satisfaction. And furthermore, it seems like the more I read the Bible, the more I believe what it's saying is that salvation and joy are interrelated. They're interconnected. They're like peanut butter and jelly or Thanksgiving and turkeys. (laughs) They cannot and are not separated. They're almost one and the same. But just as we've made the Christian life so much about heaven or hell obedience, or judgment. I think we've also couched things like the Ten Commandments into cold laws that we should obey instead of proper diagnoses of the heart. And the the, the commandments that point to joy in God, I believe, are in the first two. Have no other gods before Yahweh and do not make any idols in the forms of the heavens above or the earth below. Why do people put God's idols before them? Many times they think it brings them joy or happiness or comfort or convenience. Alcoholics or other addicts are addicted because of how it makes them feel. And at first, many addicts find pleasure in what they're addicted to, but long after the addiction has settled in, there's hardly any pleasure left. Addicts only give in because there's a slight window in the act that might be misconstrued as pleasure, but it's usually surrounded before and after by darkness, guilt, and shame. You know what God is saying in the first two commandments? If we want to use it in today's language, I believe he's really saying, let me be your obsession. Let me be your addiction. Why? Because that's actually life-giving, not life-taking. Soul satisfying. When you or I treat God as our 100% invested pursuit, our addiction, obsession, or our everything, He will satisfy in the ways that we've been looking for when addicted to anything and everything else. What are pleasures forevermore? What other, what other kind of well has water that never goes out? Kevin, we're in Isaiah. Thank you. But let's go to Isaiah 12, verses 2 and 3. And we're going to see that God is salvation. God is trustworthy. God is strength. And lastly, God is joy. Again, the first point right here at the beginning of verse 2. Surely, 
This is actually behold in the more traditional translations. Behold, God is my salvation. Now again, in context, Isaiah is, is speaking from a place where, where God is already speaking into an exiled nation. Israel had this history as a nation birthed really out of Egypt. Israel went to Egypt as a person. They came back as a people. But now they find themselves in exile in Babylon. And this word salvation is really a word for the Jews straight from the Exodus story. See, for us Christians, I think whenever we hear the word salvation, we see, if anything, a rescue from hell or maybe just an abstract picture of heaven. We go, I'm saved equals I'm going to heaven. Maybe that's how it is for more, for most Christians. For the Jews from Isaiah, whenever they drop the term salvation, I believe they're seeing a community being rescued from the clutches of Egypt who enslaved them and led out to their land. That's likely the first thought. And let's think about that picture. A few things. Perhaps the biggest thing that I'm trying to get across this whole message is God's centricity. That is, positing God where he belongs, central. God is salvation. Salvation is not me-centered. If you know the ideas behind Calvinism and Arminianism, I'm going to sound a little bit like a Calvinist, but that's okay because there are Arminians like John Wesley and James Arminius himself, who sounded very Calvinist. But salvation is less focused on my choice issue and it's more focused on a what-he-did issue. Does that make sense? Christ has offered salvation. Just as God offered salvation to the Israelites. Another interesting thing is that many of them didn't want to go, right? What are you doing here, Moses? Now, now Pharaoh's making us work harder. Just go home, Moses. But God's like, no, really, watch this. You're coming with me. And some were kicking scraping, being dragged out of Egypt, and even went into their wanderings in the wilderness. It seemed like after God punched Pharaoh in the mouth and he drowned the Egyptians in the sea, still some Israelites were like, yeah, but we're hungry. (laughs) And those guys over there in that one tiny little village, even though you just wiped out that empire, but they're really big. The Israelites don't get the point. You know that it wasn't about Moses? It wasn't about, okay, we came kicking and screaming, but we we still came. So it must have been what we did. It's about a failure. It's not even about a failure on part of the strongest empire on earth. It was about God and God alone, and he alone is salvation. If God says he can save you, he can save you. He is salvation, because the last part of verse 2, which... Is, anyways, it says, and he has become, he also has become my salvation. And so the point is, is that it's not I made him my salvation or I declared him to be my salvation. No, he has become my salvation. It's his choice. And so what does this mean for the Israelites sitting in Babylon, knowing that their temple and their holy city is dem- demolished? God is my salvation. That means it can't be our geniusness, our ability 
to muster an army or our resourcefulness will bring us salvation. No, but it is God and God alone who is our salvation. Friends, if you're in a situation, if you're in a season, God is your salvation. If you're discontent and lukewarm and complacent, at the end of the day, God is your salvation. Set your gaze, your focus on God and God alone. Because God is trustworthy. That's the second part this morning. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. One of my commentators used the word security. That there is security in which the one who trusts enters into if they trust God. For the Israelite who believed that God moved his people, saved them out of Egypt, he is he is salvation. And if he did that, and if he can do that, then he's trustworthy. In the New Testament reality, this, this sort of firm trust is echoed in the likes of Paul saying in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Friends, that's the New Testament exodus. That's the New Testament picture of salvation. He who sent his son to die in our place, if he did that, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? He proved faithful here. Will he not prove faithful in the future? Of course he will. He delivered our people from Egypt. Will he not come to our aid here in Babylon? Trustworthy. Has God not proven trustworthy for you or to you? You know, some faith traditions encourage things that find their biblical counterpart in the practices of setting up altars. If you came to our business meeting and got a pastor's report, you likely read what I'm about to tell you, but I was challenged lately with reading a book about having what we might call modern-day altars. Mementos, journal entries, tokens from those moments where we know God said something, God did something. He showed himself faithful. He spoke to us. That's needed because I don't know about you, but for me, if I'm going through a season, it's easy to let the enemy cloud my judgment, to cloud my retrospection, to start to question, well, was that really God speaking to me or was that the nachos the day before? Because he doesn't, I don't know if he's going to do what he said he's going to do. For, for Israel, the man, Jacob, also called Israel, when asked, did God really promise you a descendant or, or a restoration of our communion with him? I had a dream. I set up an altar. I can take you to that place where it happened. Did God really meet with, with you and promise to bless you? You know why I'm limping? He struck me in an all-night wrestling match I had. The rest of Israel's life, with every limp, he could never forget and would never have cause to doubt that God met him. And so I've personally been challenged lately. Write things down. Highlight a passage in the Bible you're reading. Date it. This spoke to me because. Take a picture of the place God spoke to you or spoke to you about. Take a memento. For the Israelites, who know they're only around as a people because they were led out of Egypt to begin with, and that it was God who led them and He is their salvation, He is trustworthy. He is trustworthy. Surely, God is my salvation. 
I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has also become my salvation. Now, you may have noticed the Lord God in this passage. Both words are small caps because the original language is a little bit more literally for Yah, Yahweh himself, is my strength and song. And so, again, it's getting the idea across. It's positing God as the center. It's not about, oh, we need another Moses. But rather, we still have the same God who empowered Moses. Jesus hijacked the proverbial stage from Moses to a bunch of Israelites. He was talking to in his day. We read in John 6, Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I tell you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. The Lord God, Yahweh himself, he is my strength, no one else. It is durability in the face of life, one commentator says. With God as our salvation, we really don't buckle. (laughs) Faith in this God... Look at what it did for many saints in the Old Testament and summarized in Hebrews 11. You have people building boats for floods when no rain came, and it seemed no one believed in him. And even though we considered Moses and bread from heaven and God was saying, I'm the one working through him, that doesn't mean who Moses was or how he responded day after day in obedience was of no consequence. God was his strength. It's why he got up and continued on, even those though, even though those pesky Israelites drove him crazy. He still stayed the course. Even when his own rebellion cost him the promised land himself, like I would have, I'm done. I'm not seeing that play. Why am I doing all this for? No, he still stayed the course because Yahweh was his strength. The word strength contained in the various meanings of the Hebrew word we hear of power or boldness, force, security. Even the idea of loudness is there. Is that the Lord for you? Are you strong with that strength? Because if the God of the universe is your strength, go back to Romans 8. We already mentioned verse 32, but right before that, Paul rightly asks, if God is for us? Who can be against us? And that's the point. God is for you. Do you believe that today? God is for us. I was listening to, for your older people, I'll just say a radio show. (laughs) And since I'm not trying to sell or deter anyone on certain brands or denominations of Christianity, I will just say that the host was interviewing someone who grew up in one Christian faith tradition and found his way into another. Neither tradition was evangelical friends, but in any case, the host asked him essentially, what do you find to be the greatest difference? In fact, you, the person he's interviewing, said quite adamantly, you will never return to that faith tradition you were brought up in. Why is that? The person answered that it was really the false propagation of uncertainty when it came to salvation. It was so prevalent in the tradition he was brought up into. It was a question up in the air, he seemed, and he cited a few times 
due to family still in that tradition, he would attend services, it seemed to still be a question in the air. As if Christ's sacrifice was not enough. You must do more. Now, from the context and the content of this interview I listened to, what was being argued against, or I should say what was not being argued, was this idea of cheap grace. He was not saying, I believe Christ forgave you so you can go sin all you want. But, for the genuine-hearted people who put their faith in Christ, to then think that maybe I'm not saved, and for that to bother people, was an attack really on the idea of a song we love to sing all the time, Jesus paid it all. It's almost as if someone would want to paint this picture that is completely antithetical to Romans 8.31, and like Satan in the garden asked, did God really say? Is God for you? For us? Is he really? To declare, as Isaiah is here, that God is our salvation, is to declare it of someone who not just someone or anyone, but Yahweh, God, who is trustworthy, he is our strength. He cannot and he should not be doubted. There is no reason to doubt him. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And there's always somebody out there, yeah, but <laughs> I need to confess this sin. <laughs> yeah, that sin too. Because if anyone does sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself, man, it sounds like John wants to put Christ front and center as well. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This should add strength, boldness, security, and force to who you are in him. God is our strength. And lastly, he is our joy. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has also become my salvation. With joy, Isaiah says, you, and the original you being plural here, so every one of you, will draw water from the springs. Some translations say the wells of salvation. This is where the path in life is not between path one, following God in obedience and living a life of holiness. And then path two, separately, apart from this, pursuing never-ending joy in my life. The way to accomplish path two is to follow path one. That's what King Solomon figured out in Ecclesiastes, right? There is a guy with all the money in the world and every opportunity afforded him in the world, he could have chosen it all, done it all. And if he's also the writer of Song of Songs, and if that was based on a personal experience, he could have even had the pure, unadulterated family That could have been a path he could have pursued. He had it all. He had access to it all. And Ecclesiastes suggests he tried it all. But did you know that nothing could save him? Nothing could satisfy him. Not like God does. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence and eternal pleasures at your right hand, says David. Eternal pleasures. And I wonder if sometimes Christianity has has made this culture that maybe questions, is it okay to smile in church? 
Is it okay to enjoy something about God? To take pleasure in God? That sounds kind of, I don't know, naughty or irreverent. Not according to the Bible, if it has any say in the matter. I mean, did you catch the contrast in the woman at the well story that Steve read for us? Jesus revealed that she had been with five men and with another now that wasn't her own husband. Jesus was basically saying, you keep coming to this well. This well where you think that maybe pleasures forever or soul satisfaction is found at the well of men or lovers. But it obviously runs dry every time. That's why you keep going through men. I offer the water you're looking for. Water from a well that never runs dry. Soul satisfaction. God is our joy. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And the one who is thirsty, come. And the one who desires the water of life, drink freely. God was offering more than just a promise of heaven, but life abundantly. And this is what Isaiah celebrated in Isaiah 12, that God is our salvation, God is trustworthy, God is our strength, and God is our joy. And that's what Isaiah gives thanks for. And it is a good thing to be thankful for. So here's the point. I wonder if you've taken this into consideration in your life. We don't, or we shouldn't, come to church primarily to say, well, I have another Sunday in the bag. That means much closer to assurance of salvation. Because the moment you put your faith in the living Christ for his death and resurrection for your sins, you were as close as you'll ever be to going to heaven. Because there's really only two spots you can be. You're either going or you're not. So the point of church and gathering with the saints and reading and meditating on his word and of praying and doing the works of kingdom and building his kingdom is to be stoking the fires of joy in our lives. Joy that he brings, that he offers in salvation. The waters spring well of joy drawn from salvation for us. Does that make sense? Let's pray. Father, if there is a question in the air for any of us, we must not be reading your word because your word makes it abundantly clear that we can be assured that you're trustworthy and you're strong and you have provided salvation for us. Yes, it is a sin to take that assurance and then to do nothing with our lives, but just assume, well, since I'm going to heaven, that's taken care of, moving on. No, you offer a whole lot more than just a ticket to heaven. You offer joy in our lives, satisfaction that we're looking for, a well that never runs dry. And if we have the audacity to be saved and then also sad, forgive us. Help us to take joy. Help us to know that doing your work for your kingdom provides the most soul-satisfying work ever. I'm not saying everybody needs to become pastors. But, Father, we do need to be doing what you've called us to do, even if that means you've called us to be the best janitor ever and to minister to those beside us. Father, whatever it is, wherever our lot in life is, help us to be responding daily to you. And you give us a great incentive. It will bring us joy to be doing what you want us to do.
So, Father, we thank you. We also now lift up to you the food that's been prepared today for our eating. Would you please bless the conversation and fellowship around the table? Um, We thank you for this, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.